This morning, our reading is Hebrews chapter 12. Have you heard that faith comes by study and study by the intellect? That notion has resulted in many disappointments. The Bible says in Hebrews, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. I would like to read from the word of God and this passage follows the chapter on faith. And early in this reading this morning, we see the designer and developer of faith, Jesus Christ. So let's read Hebrews 12, starting at verse 1 and reading the entire chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For he... For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates that the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. peace of Jesus be with all of you here this morning. And I, I just apologize up front that it may be somewhat tedious for you to listen to me. Uh, and I, I don't know what else to do except I just had to get this sermon done eventually. We're running out of options. Um, for those of you that are not regulars here, this is my third attempt at dealing with this passage. <clears throat> and so hopefully we'll get that one checked and moved on as we continue our study here through the book of Genesis. Uh, I have been the object of a few jokes here this morning before the beginning of the service, and I'll deal with a few of those. Yes, my name is Steve Byler, and I am one of the pastors here at Calvary who preaches about once a quarter. At least that's the most recent track record. Uh, some of that is due to weather conditions, and some of that is due to physical conditions, which, as you can tell, are not completely gone at the moment. <clears throat> uh, but with the help of the Lord... Uh, we'll, we'll hopefully get through this this morning and probably a little bit of water. So thank you, Jerry, for that. It was a move of wisdom. The other thing I would say, I, this passage has been published in a bulletin now three times. And I'm sure that there will be at least one of you that will come to me afterwards and say, but isn't that a different title than what you had previously? Yes, it is. Uh, very different, actually. And the, the actual thrust of the message this morning uh, is a bit different than I had thought it would be uh, in the previous times. And I'm never, I'm never quite sure how much of what we derive from Scripture 
and get from Scripture in our reading and study is shaped by kind of our circumstances and the things that we experience coming up to the text. I'm quite certain that some of it is. Uh, we have certain kind of capacities to hear, and we, certain things stand out to us based on what our experiences are leading up to a given situation. And in my reading and rereading and study of this passage, again this past week, there's a theme that has emerged in a way that I had not noted before. And it almost seems as though this, this collection of seven little stories culminates at the spot in which a pagan king says to the patriarch, you are now the blessed of the Lord. You are now the blessed of the Lord. That really caught me this past week. Most of us are not an Abraham. Most of us are not a Jacob. We're an Isaac. We're sons and daughters of some great men in the past. We may even be fathers to men who might become great men. But us, we're just kind of ordinary. Ordinary people. We're Isaacs. Isaac doesn't rise up as a great star in the book of Genesis. The fact is, as we read this passage, this is really the only chapter that's given completely to the story of Isaac. Everywhere else he's playing second fiddle to his father or to his son. He's the most ordinary son of the most extraordinary father. He's the most ordinary father of most extraordinary son. But he's more than just a placeholder in the legacy of faith that unfolds. Why? Because God has a plan. And God is working his purposes out. God is working out his plan that leads toward the ultimate gift of his son, the Lord Jesus. He's working out that plan generation by generation. He's doing so superintending the frailty and the faltering of humanity. He doesn't get any great specimens to work with. They're all messed up, every single one of them. And yet, he superintends the affairs of men so that his plan is not thwarted. And at the end of the day, his glory is put on display again and again and again. And God gets done what God intended to do. Whether he has an Abraham or an Isaac or a Jacob. And our closing line here this morning is going to be, you, you, you are now the blessed of the Lord. And I told the Lord this morning, that has burned in my heart in some fresh ways, how blessed we are of the Lord. I really need a, a, a powerful voice this morning that reflects the passion that I think God would like to say to us, would like to say that to us with. Of course, and now it comes through kind of an Isaac kind of voice. Okay, 
uh, actually less than ordinary. It's subpar. Just take about any language you want to use there, and it kind of fits. It's gravelly. It's gro it's yeah. It's all kinds of things. But uh, then I said, well, that does kind of demonstrate the Isaac issue. Okay, um, God still works out His plan because He has a plan. And how does He do it? He does it through faulty, frail creatures like us, all of us. But he does it to bless the nations and to bring glory to his own name. This passage, Genesis 26, uh, it's interesting to read some of the scholars that are much more scholarly than any of us here in the room. And they say, you know, this passage, and by the way, I challenge you to do it. Just read through Genesis and pull out chapter 26. You don't miss a thing. Okay, the story actually flows on much more freely if you get rid of chapter 26. So why in the world is it there? Well, it's a bit of a parenthetical insertion. Oh, by the way, there is this other guy here. His name is Isaac. Not a big deal. But his dad was, and his son is. So a bit of a parenthetical insertion. We're going to get to another one of those parenthetical insertions, uh, Lord willing about eight chapters from here. Isaac, like Ab unlike Abraham, had no life-altering messages from God that sent him packing his bags from his stable homeland to wander off into a foreign land where God said, I'll show you where it is eventually, just get going. And he trusted God and did it. Isaac, unlike that, was the only of the three patriarchs that lived in Palestine his entire lifetime. Stayed there his whole life. He didn't even leave to go back to his fatherland to find his wife. Somebody else did that for him. He never went down to Egypt like both Abraham and Jacob did in times of famine. In this passage, he kind of packs up and heads that direction. And God says, whoop, stop, whoa, you're not leaving. No great trips for you, buddy. You're staying right here. And so he stays in the promised land. He never leaves. No marked promises from God that God keeps repeating year after year after year after year. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. By the way, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. No promises like that, like his father had. Tested his faith to the very edge. Yet he believed God. And finally, in his old age, the miraculous birth of a son. No, Isaac's just an ordinary kind of guy. Unlike his son then, Jacob, who has this life-altering vision, encounters God when he's sleeping there with his head on a stone for a pillow. And he has this vision of angels ascending and descending. And God makes a personal promise to Jacob. Now Isaac doesn't have any of those spectacular visions. And Isaac doesn't make that fateful journey to Egypt like his son Jacob will in his old age. He's just an ordinary son of an extraordinary father. An ordinary father of an extraordinary son. But maybe it is this ordinary man whom we begin to identify with Because, hey, we're so ordinary. 
It's just who we are. We feel like placeholders sometimes in God's great story. Our lives seem fraught with difficulty and we do stupid things and God has to save us from our stupidity. And nothing really markedly happens that's earth-shaking, life-altering for people around us. We're just ordinary people. We're just placeholders in God's plan. And yet, it matters because... God has a plan, and he's working out that plan through the frailty, by superintending the frailty of humanity to bless them and ultimately demonstrate his glory. So we have seven little episodes here in this chapter. The first one, God's promise to Isaac when he is in Gerar, which is an area where the Philistines lived. So the first half of the story kind of takes place in Gerar, which is down closer to the plains down in the flatter area along the Mediterranean Sea where the Philistines tend to live. The second half of this, this passage takes place back up in the hillsides in the higher elevations, mostly around a place called Beersheba, from which Isaac left and to which he returns again at the end of this passage. We find he gets the promise in Jewar from God, and then later there's a divine promise, again an affirmation when he's back in Beersheba. There's an exchange between Isaac and Abimelech down in Gerar. There's an exchange between Isaac and Abimelech back in Beersheba. Isaac is blessed in Gerar and then expelled by Abimelech. It says, you'll see he gets moved out. When they meet back in Beersheba, Isaac and Abimelech make peace and are reconciled. And Isaac blesses Abimelech. And then we have Isaac and all kinds of trouble with wells down in Gerar. And we have Isaac and a well back in Beersheba, which he digs, he pitches his tent, he builds an altar, and he worships God. So deep parallels between what happens down the land of the Philistines, what happens in the hill country where he spends most of his time. Each of these seven episodes, uh, if you have a great memory or have been reading Genesis in the last period of time, you will note each of these seven episodes has a direct parallel to Father Abraham. These stories are knockoffs in many ways of what happened to his father, both in the way he sins before the king in, Philist in, in the land of the Philistines or to the Abimelech. And again, Abimelech likely is a title, not the name, proper name of a person both in the way he's rebuked by a pagan king, both in the way he faces conflict and seeks a certain type of resolution to that conflict, and the way God continues to affirm his covenant blessing, both to Abraham and now to Isaac. And it is particularly in that repeat from Abraham to Isaac that we say, this man too is now blessed of the Lord. He's part of what God is doing. He's not a little detour off the side. He's the most ordinary man, but he is being utilized by God, God's plan, to bring blessing to the nations and to display his glory in the world. It also reminds us that he's cut from the same cloth as his father. 
And for many of us here in the room, at some point in time, that's a rather uncomfortable thought. We're cut from the same cloth as our fathers. And as we see our fathers fail, very likely, in those same ways we will fail. Isaac did. Very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable to think about that. And almost, deep, it's deeply humbling when we see it happen. But the legacy that our fathers left us, both of that human brokenness, but also a legacy of blessing, because of the grace of God, allows us, when we fail in the ways our fathers have failed, to know the covenant blessing of God so that we don't have to do it twice like our father did. And by his grace, we have the opportunity to build on the faith legacy of our fathers and go beyond. And Isaac did that, and we'll note that when we get there. So Genesis chapter 26, read the entire chapter. (coughs) Can't get away from the mic, I guess. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. 
So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Jewar with Ahazeth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you, ha that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord." So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, at times as we read the stories of your people from thousands of years ago, they seem to us to be just that, ancient stories in a world so different from ours. But Lord, you are the same God that you were three plus thousand years ago in the life and world of Isaac. You're the same God today. You're working out the very same plan that you were working at thousands of years ago. You work through the most ordinary of means, through people, you call them, you bless them, and you use them to bless others. And ultimately, we see that your blessing has come to us in your son, and that he came through the line of Abraham, a descendant of this man, Isaac. Lord, open our eyes today both to your divine plan and how your glory is put on display through that plan. Open our eyes also to human frailty, the frailty of men like Isaac, our own frailty, and how broken we are. But may we also glimpse your goodness in how you have blessed and how we, even today, are now the blessed of the Lord. And bring us to a place of rejoicing because of that blessing. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
Note first the plan of God. God is the playwright, and he's the director of the drama of life. It's so easy for us in our day-to-day routines, so easy to forget that there's a big plan unfolding and that we're not at the center of the story. We're simply on the stage for this brief little moment in time. Our part is significant. It matters. But the story was not written about us. We're not the lead character. We're not there in many scenes. We're only there in a few moments. It's also easy for us to get that there is a strategic plan in place, that it's going somewhere, that history is going somewhere. It's not merely a cycle in which everybody's here today, gone tomorrow, here today, gone tomorrow. And it just goes on interminably. There's a line, and it's headed, it's moving somewhere. Just so, it was not really about Abraham. Abraham died and buried. The story of Abraham, in a sense, is over. So we have, then, the man Isaac. But you know what? It's not really about Isaac either. Followed by the great man Jacob, who is then known as Israel, the father of the tribes of Israel. But it wasn't really about him either, though he was a great man. It's about God. It's about God's plan. It's about his glory being put on display in his creation that worships him, that puts themselves into proper perspective with him, that aligns themselves with him instead of demanding center stage and claiming to be what the world is all about. It's about God putting his glory on display before a worshiping and through a worshiping created host, including humanity. Israel is really just one scene. And this, this short passage, is just one act in that scene. God's intention throughout history is to display his righteousness, his goodness, and his salvation to the nations through this people he is calling out. Abraham, now Isaac, until he finally builds a great nation led by David, the King David, and his wise son Solomon. When it seems that this nation rises to its apex and the eyes of the world turn toward the glory that's on display in Jerusalem, focal point being the temple, the dwelling place of God. But of course, even they are still only a small company. And Isaac and his company is but a small company in God's overall plan. And the pathway ahead for Isaac and his company is fraught with peril. There will be famine, there will be rivalries, there will be exile. There's going to be slavery. And then a glorious exodus, followed by wilderness wanderings. And finally, a return to Canaan from where, guess what? There would be more exiles and more returns. Each of these events seems so deeply significant and monumental as it's unfolding. And they are, just as you're 
events seem deeply significant and dramatic and life-shaping. And yet they're only a small bit, a tiny glimpse of the unfolding story of God. It's God's plan. It's God's work. It's God's story that's unfolding. And we are privileged to be a part of that story, though we're only a very, very small part. A very small part. Why is God doing all of this? He's doing these things, first of all, so that he can bless people. And he has to bless people in order to do these things. Because we truly are an impoverished group of people. In blessing a person and in blessing a people, he doesn't bless them just to make them happy. Though he certainly does that. But he blesses a people. He blesses individuals so that they have the resources and capacity to be a blessing to the nations. And so here in very, very specific language, he tells Isaac, I'm going to keep my covenant with you for your father Abraham's sake, but it's not really just about you. I want to bless you. I want to pour my blessings out on you, Isaac, so that you have the capacity to be a blessing to the nations. And I would just ask you to consider, and we're going to look at this a couple of times, what does it look like for you to see yourself in moments of blessing as not merely being a container that is filled with the blessings of God, but rather a channel for those blessings. Think about the ways you are privileged and blessed right now because of God's grace to you. Whether it's because of who your father was, or the time in history in which you live, or the opportunities that you personally have had. Think about how you are blessed. What does it mean to possess that for yourself? And what does it mean to instead be a channel of God's blessing to the nations because you have been blessed by him. That's what he tells Isaac. I'm going to pour out my blessings on you. We see a few of those ways in which he did it here in this story. But I'm doing it specifically so that the nations of the world will get a taste of the righteousness, the goodness, and the blessing of this creator God. But of course, just because you're blessed doesn't mean you're free from troubles. And the very opening lines of this passage, Isaac encounters trouble. Famine. And that's not one any of us would choose. Okay, so the Californians are complaining. They've, had less wa- they've got less water out there now than they've had for years. And everybody's saying life in California will never be the same again. Well, it's possible. And that's probably not all bad. However, just check your lettuce, you know, and probably a high percentage of it comes from California, so that means it might influence your tossed salad somehow, but then Marlon will be happy for that. So there's some blessing and some loss in various places here. But there's famine. There's trouble. He's a blessed one of God, but there's still trouble. And he begins to follow in the steps of his father when there's famine. He heads from the high country where the rains have dried up and it's not raining. He heads down toward the coast, toward the Shafila, toward the plains along the sea. 
And you have to know this is the way toward Egypt. Okay, and why would you go to Egypt in a time of famine? Well, Abraham went there. And of course, we see the next generation. Jacob goes there. Why would you go there? Well, they've got this massive river. They don't have this tiny little muddy creek called the Jordan River. They've got the Nile. And though the Nile flows through the desert of Egypt, they figured out ways to irrigate from that. And so they're never going to have a famine in Egypt because they just irrigate their gardens and they grow the leeks and the garlics and all the wonderful vegetables and fruits that they want because they can manage their context. In Palestine, they're dependent on rain. If God shuts up the heavens, there's famine. So Jacob says, Isaac says, what did my dad do when the heavens dried up and the pastures start disappearing? There's no more grass for my flocks and my herds. We follow the grass. And the grass is going to lead us down to Egypt. But before he gets to Egypt, he gets down off the highlands, down into the coastal areas, God shows up and says, whoa, you're not going to Egypt, buddy. You're not going there. And I want you to know there's this particular part of this promise that was never spoken that I can find to Abraham that is now spoken to Isaac. He says, Isaac, I want you to stay in the land and I will be with you. I'm going to be with you. Now that promise is repeated by God to his people. It's repeated by his incarnate son, Jesus. When he says to his disciples, I'm with you. Even to the end of the age, I'm with you. So there's a famine. There's a hardship. Possible death from famine. But God says, I'm with you. What does it mean to have the presence of God in the face of famine? Some of you know. He said he would be with them. He said, I will bless you. Isaac, like his father, obeyed, did what God told him to do, and God prospered him there. And then God brought him back to the hill country of Beersheba. And when he does that, he meets Isaac again, and he says, I told you I would take care of you in this land. You stayed, I cared for you. You can trust me with that. I will take care of you. And Isaac's response to seeing all that has taken place is to build an altar back in Beersheba to worship God. And he pitches his tent. Has a ring of permanence. And then he digs a well. Isaac's nomadic wandering is over. He is at home. God has promised to be with him, to bless him. God has demonstrated his care. God's plan is working out as God had said it would. God takes care of his people. God still takes care of his people. It's a part of his plan. That's how he's going to work his plan out. You say, ah, that's the good part. It is, isn't it? It's wonderful. But look at the messiness now. The messiness of the story. There's trouble. There was the famine. There was no grass. 
they moved. Not just that, they get down. Now they're surrounded by pagans who are powerful, led by a pagan king, though fortunately in this case, has some sense of righteousness of a rightly ordered world. But Isaac, just like his father, is skittish and afraid. He has a beautiful wife. And he's afraid she might be in high demand, living close to a powerful king. And so, trying to protect his own skin, he says, she's my sister. Now you see, Abraham could kind of get by with that. It's kind of, it was kind of half true. Because Sarah was his half-sister. But there's no kin here at all now. Okay, Isaac's taking this one to the next level. Yeah, it's not good. She's some distant cousin. Oh, she's my sister. Okay, I'm going to trust God and stay in the land, but I can't trust God to look after my wife in this situation. I'm going to lie about it. Well, Abimelech takes the line. And then one day, it's a little unclear here, but one day, evidently, Abimelech is in his house and he looks out through a window in his house and he sees Isaac acting toward Rebekah in ways that brothers don't act toward sisters. And he says, what's that all about? And he's upset. And just like his father Abraham was reprimanded by a pagan king, now the blessed of the Lord gets set straight by a Philistine king, nonetheless. And Abimelech says, what have you done? In your failing, you could have brought tremendous guilt on my people. Someone could have had sexual relations with your wife. And God would have judged us because we didn't know she was married. You're a foolish man. Isaac is set back in his place. (coughs) Not only does Isaac here repeat the sins of his father, that's kind of the dark side, but he also builds on the success of his father. And uh, this would be an interesting study. I've just observed it. But you notice how generations have developed, how the human race has developed. You know, they were, I don't know that we're actually cavemen, though Adam may have lived in a cave. I don't know if he built the house early on or after the fall. But there has been a trajectory of progression in the history of humanity. There were herders who had flocks. And then there was the next level of development really had to do with agriculture, intensive agriculture planting more crops than you yourself could consume for the purpose of trading. Okay, that's a slightly more developed civilization. And we don't read of Abraham doing that kind of work. Isaac does. And it's interesting, incidentally, to watch in even the conservative Anabaptist world, there tends to be a certain type of development that repeatedly takes place in our approach to economics and specializations and careers and so forth. That's not the topic, but consider it nevertheless. It requires a building on something of a previous generation to accomplish something more in the next generation. And Isaac did that. Much of who you are, many of the successes that you will see, many of the blessings you will enjoy in your lifetime are built firmly on the foundations of your father, your father's 
the generations before you. You're able to accomplish things because of what they did that allow you the next step of development, success, whatever it might be. We're not really alone in the world in that way. So we do copy, in many ways, the sins of our fathers. That's the tragic side. The side of blessing is we can also build on the successes of the previous generations. It's true in business. It's true in homes. It's true in church life. It's true in the maturation of the church. We have those opportunities. And they're a sign of God's blessing. Isaac does that. And it must have been a great eye-opening moment for him when he harvests. He plants a crop, and he harvests the best recorded crop success in history here in this area, a hundredfold. He reaps a hundredfold. Abimelech looks at him and says, Whoa, this guy is an incredible farmer. And now he's wealthy. And Abimelech starts getting nervous. And not just nervous, becomes envious. And so what's he do? He has a conversation with Isaac. And basically says, out you go. Get away. Okay, and you should hear echoes of what's coming in Egypt. Okay, these stories seem to be told over and over becoming too powerful a presence, threatening the powers that be. It's time to move on. But even in that unsettling move, God blesses. Because God is seeking to bring his creation into a pathway of blessing, a trusting faith and resulting obedience, where we are aligned with his ways, with his ways of righteousness, his ways of goodness, and the pathway of redemption. And he blesses us in order to get us there. He prospers Isaac. This blessing includes forgiveness. Isaac did some really stupid things down in Gerar. He sinned spectacularly. God's forgiveness was also spectacular. You don't read of it again. God didn't say, let's be sure... Nobody ever forgets that Isaac did the stupid thing. Let's just keep telling everybody in every book of the Bible, look what the patriarchs did, look what the patriarchs did. God leaves it, lets it go. And it's as though God has forgotten. And when we sin in the ways of our fathers, that same grace is available to us. That same God will forgive and he invites us back into the pathway of blessing to build on the gifts of the previous generation to become a blessing to the nations. And when God's blessing res resides on a man, on a woman, when God's blessing resides on a household or on a community or on a nation, it becomes evident. It becomes evident to those around it becomes evident even to the pagans. And they will well say, you are now the blessed of the Lord. These were the words of the pagan king to Isaac. The same Abimelech who had sent him away 
out of fear, now comes back to Isaac to make a pact, a covenant. And Isaac receives him. Isaac receives him and blesses him. Notice just, just a little window of events. What do they do? They have this conversation. Isaac says, wait a minute, you hate me. Why are you here? And Abimelech says, you are now the blessed of the Lord. And Isaac acknowledges God has prospered his way. And he invites him and his commanders in. He prepares a feast. He brings out his best drinks. And he blesses them with a feast, a pact of blessing. And then he sends them on the way, on their way in peace. Did you know, as people who are now the blessed of the Lord, you too may be observed. And in that blessing, you have the responsibility to pass on the blessing of peace even to pagans around you. Now, even this rich blessing is not without trouble. And the last two verses in this passage, what do you do with them? They're blessed, they're at rest, but Esau. <sighs> but you see, that's the nature of life this side of the new world. Blessed, but not quite. At rest, but there's a tinge of bitterness. It's still not all at rest. In conclusion, let's be honest here. All of us are cut out of the same cloth as our fathers. Many of our failures are the same sort as our fathers. Let the grace of God cut short those failings so they don't become a lifetime of failure or a multi-generational failure. Permit the grace of God to restore, to redeem those areas of failure. Permit the grace of God to help you build on the blessings of a previous generation. The blessings you've been given by God, God's covenant faithfulness extends to you and has been confirmed in you by the work of his son. And then in this state of blessing, deal wisely. Deal wisely with those around you. They will see that you are blessed of the Lord. Some will be provoked to envy and jealousy. Deal wisely with them. God has blessed in the past. There's no doubt about it. You know that. What we often tend to forget is that God is blessing right now. And you, today, are the blessed of the Lord. You, today, are the blessed of the Lord. What are you doing with it? See to it that you become a channel of that blessing so that your blessing that you have from the Lord becomes a blessing to the nations. You know this God of blessing has reconciled us 
to himself through the death of his son on the cross. And that's a blessing the nations need to hear. We live in a land that, though stumbling in many ways, is still a land where we reach innumerable ways. We reap innumerable ways of God's blessing because of the faith of previous generations. Now you are the blessed of the Lord. Don't squander it. Sure, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be famine. There's going to be envy. You're going to sin in the ways your fathers have sinned. But God will restore you and bless you. Don't squander it. Don't go to Egypt. Dwell in the land. God has promised to take care of you to be with you. Some of you are facing famine now. God has said he'll be with you. Some of you are reaping a hundredfold and are struggling with the tests associated with that. God said to Isaac in that place, do not fear. You are blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. Be generous. Make peace. Set a feast even before those who oppose you. Eat, drink, dig wells, and worship God. Whether you're in a time of feasting or a time of famine, remember, you now are the blessed of the Lord. Don't waste those opportunities. God is working out his plan. And today, for these moments, it's through you. Let's pray. Lord, teach us how to find our way to renewed faith in you that trusts you and obeys, that enjoys your blessing, whether achieved through famine or rich harvest. May we be a blessing to the nations for the sake of Jesus and your glory.